You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Sarah Ellison, a staff writer here at The Post. Joining me today is Brian Bumgarner, best known for his role as Kevin in the popular sitcom The Office. He's here to talk to us about his new book, Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, The Ultimate Oral History of The Office. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much. It's so uh, nice to be here with you. Um, well, we're thrilled to have you. Um, one, I just want to thank you for the timing of this and ask you a little bit about what you thought made The Office so popular at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, we were all forced to work from home. Um, and I think it really helped people to sort of re-enter this world. But I'm, I'm curious why you think it may have done that. Well, I don't know exactly, except I know that time and time and time again, uh, I am told that the office brings people comfort. Uh, that is a word that keeps coming up to me when people say to me, oh, I watch The Office every night before I go to sleep, which at its face, I always think, is that a good thing that you're watching The Office <laughs> to help you sleep? Um, but I keep hearing that. And I think that ultimately there are crazy characters who do crazy things and at times don't behave appropriately. Uh, at, at times don't behave nicely, but the overall message from the show is one of family and kindness and disparate people who are together in a space day after day that ultimately uh, care about each other. And I think that that feeling uh, is what brings people comfort. Um, so let's get to the book. Why now? Why did you decide to launch a book at this moment? Well, in part, it's exactly the first question you asked. I mean, over, I say to people, we were a hit show, right? Like we were NBC's top show, top scripted show for the majority of the time we were on the air after struggling mightily out of the gates. But, but you know, we were never like, friends, right? We were never like our faces on billboards in Times Square and on the cover of Vogue week after week or, or whatever, month after month. Like that that wasn't the show. Like we were culty. We were a hit. There were people who loved it, but we were never that. And then over the last few years, there has been a shift, which is, and part of it came uh, with me walking through airports or going into restaurants again. And I had a conversation with Rain Wilson at some point a, a few years ago. And I said, you know, it just, it feels like the show is as big now as it was when we were on the air. I mean, you know, this was six, seven years since we filmed anything. And he said, oh no, we're bigger. It's, it's bigger now. And then Nielsen starts re releasing the, the information. I saw the graphic come up. 57.1 billion minutes were streamed on Netflix alone in, in 2020. It doesn't count Comedy Central. It doesn't count DVDs. It doesn't count, you know, all the illegal ways that people download the show. And so for me, it was about a question, which was why? Like, why is this show now more popular than it was? 
you know, now seven, eight years since we've been on the air? Why are more people watching it? And why are our young people watching the show? So, yeah, for me, it, it wasn't about, oh, let's get the gang back and tell old stories, though there is that. Um, it, it really was an active exploration uh, from me and Ben Silverman as to, to why. Why did this happen? Why is the show bigger now? And can we find clues from the beginning that that tell us why in terms of the cast that was hired, the way the show was shot, uh, Greg Daniels being brought on as, uh, you know, as the creator of, of the American version of The Office, Ken Quapis, who were who was hired, you know, we, can we find some clues as to how the show was shot, its specific aesthetic that that tell us why that is? So that was really, for me, the reason for the book was trying to come up with the answer to that question. And do you feel you did that? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I came up with multiple answers, right? I mean, it is, uh, and it was intentionally an oral history, right? Which by definition means it's, it's, it's our memories and it's individual memories. And there are things that I learned that I didn't know anything about that I had never heard before. And then there are, are moments or scenes or, or events that took place that I remember, but I remember quite differently. So what the book is, is really um, an attempt to bring all of those memories together and to tell our story as, as we remember or as we interpret um, the events unfolding. So um, I don't know exactly. I think that in terms of the young people, uh, something now is very, very clear to me because, you know, now it's it's not just 16 and 17 year olds. It's 10, 11, 12 year olds who are, you know, writing me or approaching me. And I think that, you know, when we were on the air, this was this was conscious, right? This was we believed we were making a show for people who worked in offices like we talked about that on set. Like, you know, there are 200 million Americans that work in offices. So if 10% can relate to it, if 5% can relate to it and watch it, then, you know, then we'll have a hit. We'll be in, we'll be in great shape. Um, we were not making a show for young people, but I think that the correlation, the parallel between an unreasonable boss who makes uh, his employees do unreasonable things while sitting next to people that you don't choose to sit next to in a similar environment day after day, the parallel between that and an unreasonable teacher who makes their students do unreasonable things while sitting next to people year after year, day after day, you don't choose to. I think that that environment between school and office is, is way closer than, than even we knew. Fascinating. As the mother of a nine-year-old who's a huge fan of this show, I can I can attest to the appeal among younger people. Um, you told my colleague uh, Thomas Floyd last month. Well, he wrote that the book is less like a Hollywood nostalgia trip and more like a true crime mystery. And you told him, "quote Instead of why is this person missing or who killed this person, the mystery is why is this show now more watched than anything else." Why yeah. do you think it is more popular than ever before? You know, again, there are there are theories. Um, 
that that different people had that I, I thought were at least interesting. Um, there was there was one notion um, that a couple of people discussed with me that um, that there is a nostalgia that comes like here's this is crazy. We, we were making a show right about a dying industry, uh, the paper company business, a small business. But a couple of people talked to me about that that to young people or even people that are not so young now, like the day of the small business is is dying, right? So we have issues about, you know, called healthcare or, you know, constantly we're trying to survive and stay afloat, but, you know, big corporations, Sabre in the case of the office, you know, has to come in and kind of save us or take us over. But now, like, companies like Dunder Mifflin don't exist, right? Or they exist very, very sporadically. If you want to be in the paper business or, or, or office supply business, it's about staples, right? It's about office max. Like the, the, the mom and pop shops are dying. So it's this weird thing where we were in a way lampooning or poking fun of, of the way that we operated in this small paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But now there's an idea, at least from some people that actually that's, that would be really cool. Like it would be cool to live in a place like, or sorry, to work in a place like Dunder Mifflin um, because those kind of businesses in and of itself, even, you know, 15 years later are, well, they're less and less. Um, I have one producer who just says, in terms of why now he just says, well, it's funny. Like it's, it's of course, of course that's why that, and that it's sort of as simple as that. I will say that I went back, uh, and watched the whole thing start to finish. And it's remarkable to me, in my opinion, as just a fan myself of the show, how well it holds up. And there is, there's sort of a theory about that for me, right? Like there are so many other shows that uh, feel dated, right? When you go back and watch, whether it's the hairstyles or the wardrobe or whatever. But it occurred to me that, you know, we shoot in this documentary format, right? That when you, if you watch a documentary about the 70s, you don't watch that and go, oh, it feels so dated or the 60s. You don't you don't think, oh, that's dated. You you're watching a documentary about a different period of time. And there's there is a belief for me that in terms of of it doesn't matter when you watch it, either when you, if you watched it live when it was on the air or you watch it 10 or 20 years from now because of the way it's shot and because of how strongly we adhered to that documentary format it almost by definition makes it not dated. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, I think that's a part of it as well. And now I think, especially with young people, um, it's a little subversive, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that appeals to young people as well. That's what I've sort of always thought. Um, and now, well, I mean, you're nine-year-old. I, again, I think it's a little young. But I, I, who, who am I to judge? I love it. Um, I think that um, it's, you know, now it's become, it's almost become required viewing to go to school and to be able to talk about it. 
Well, we censor, we censor parts of it. So unless okay. you think I'm an irresponsible mother. Um, right. I think let me when people you, tell me yeah. that with, with, young, with young people, when I always think about the sexual harassment episode. Like that is the episode that always right. popped into my mind. And this is some good trivia that it, we were the first half hour comedy in television history to have the deep voice come on at the beginning that says the following program may be unsuitable for children under 13. And I think about that all the time with the young fans who come up. I'm like, you watch that. Like I, I was a little blushing during that episode. I don't know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, well, when you were going to your coworkers and talking to them about the book, how receptive were they to go back and unearth some of their memories and some of the secrets? that you all had been through together? You know, that was probably the most surprising thing for me was how open people were. And I that's probably like a stock answer, like of course, but I actually think w in terms of that also, we're kind of in the sweet spot, right? Like it had been seven or eight years. So one, it was great for so many, you know, particularly writers or executives or, crew people that I hadn't seen in years. So there was that, there was us just kind of getting the band back together and talking, which was, was really fun. But I think also whether it was articulated uh, by everybody or not, everybody sort of has that same question. Like it's, it's now brought up so often in our lives. And so for us to sort of be able to go back with enough time and space between between shooting the show and, and, you know, and now that I think people really wanted to, I mean, I tell this story. Um, I don't know if he would get mad at me or not, but I said, I talked to Steve Carell for three and a half hours. We talked, um, he was in the middle of shooting space force. Like he did not have the time for us to have that conversation. Uh, but we did and we finished and, and, um, you know, said goodbye. And I said, Oh, I'll walk you to your car. And we walked down, you know, went down an elevator, went out to his car and just, we were just chatting. And then we stood by his car and talked for another 30 minutes. And I was like, wait, we don't have the mics down here. What do we do? Why did we stop upstairs? But no, I think there's just a genuine um, curiosity and also just feeling how special it is that it has had, you know, not just survived but is thriving so many years later and you know i think for all of us it's particularly gratifying because look let's be honest we all have worked or work on things now that we do for a variety of reasons that are not necessarily the quality of the project right and that was the thing from the very beginning everybody bought in to the office yeah. Everybody who was working on it believed in the show, one, and two, worked extra hard, like didn't complain. There wasn't egos. Like, I don't even know how to explain it, but it was just about trying to deliver. And when there were fights, which there were, it was always about what's the, what is the right answer here? Like, what is the best, not right because that doesn't apply in art, but what is the best way to shoot this scene? What is the best thing for this relationship? And I joked with Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski a lot, like nothing would halt a production day 
like a big Jim and Pam scene. And there were typically one a week, right? And it would be, it's times just hours. Like what, because their, their story played out in, in the margins, in the background, often with a glance or a graze of hand on hand, you know, like what is too big? What is too much? How should this be played out? And so it wasn't easy always. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, for one was like, is there any way that I can go home before the scene starts? Because I know we're going to be here for 17 hours if I don't. Um, so it wasn't that there weren't discussions or fights, but it was always in what is the what is the best way that this scene could be shot? And that was universal across the board. And I mean, crew, writers, directors who came in, actors, everybody was just trying to make the best show. So the fact that it's successful uh, has found this this new life and resurgence. I think everybody's just genuinely excited about that. Was anybody resistant to talking to you for the book? No. I mean, we had, you know, when we did our preliminary interviews, we um, we stopped. I'm going to mess up the date. But I talked to Craig Robinson. He had been on a stand-up tour across the land. And I think I talked to him on March, something like March 13th of 2020, right? And, and drove home and then basically the world shut down. So there were people that I then had to talk to over Zoom, uh, which I wanted to do everybody in person. I went to New York a couple of times. We have some people there um, who you know I wanted to talk to. So there were a few people because of schedule and the changing world of COVID that I wish that we had been able to, to talk to, but, but didn't, but no. We sat down, everybody who came in, it was, nobody was like on a clock for sure. Um, as somebody who writes for a living, I know it can be difficult. I'm wondering, was there a difficult part of putting this book together or what was the most difficult part of it? Well, I think that I'm not a writer <laughs> or a journalist, right? I mean, I joked, um, we, we, we we were trying to talk about every aspect of the show and the world of the show. And it, it immediately became like, well, I have to go to Scranton. Like Scranton is such a huge part of the show and the people of Scranton have done so much, been a couple of huge events. I mean, we threw our rap party, not at like the Beverly Hills hotel, but we went to Scranton and threw the party there because we felt like that's, that's where we needed to go. And so I felt it was really important for me to go back. And I kind of joked when I was there, like, I, I'm not a, I'm not a journalist, but I'm, I'm pretending, uh, I'm trying my best to be. So I think that that was, you know, that was the difficulty I think, but also, uh, the strength. I mean, we had talked initially, uh, about, about me not sort of hosting, writing, doing all the interviews, but ultimately we decided that that first person, um, that I may not ask the best questions. I may not know exactly what to ask, but the questions that I will ask will be based on a shared history. And I think what we got because it was me um, was, was way better. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you you did talk about your ability, you know, the, the discussion of whether to have a journalist do it or, or you do it yourself 
what do you think you got out of people because it was based on that shared history that a that a professional question asker like a journalist wouldn't have been able to get? Well, look, I get interviewed all the time. I mean, I we're more having a discussion, but you know, this in and of itself, I, 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 you know, if I'm getting interviewed by somebody, there's always a guard that comes up. Again, again, this is more of a discussion. But if I'm getting interviewed, um, and 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 the person asking the questions may be asking because of real and true curiosity, but I was able to ask questions um, because I was there. And so I think there are two things. One is I was I was able to people uh, or remind them of specific events that I knew about because we were both there in the in the room where it happened. To steal a phrase, um, but also, you know, I wanted it to be entertaining as well, and I wanted some of the comedy to come through. And, you know, a huge part of the book is is about the family that we created. And I think that when people talk about comfort as well, I think that the way that we all felt about each other and our experience together comes through when you're watching the show. I think it's I think it's I think it's clear. And so hope what I wanted through this was for that same feeling to happen, that that there is. um that it is, is it is a story told by a family, as opposed yeah. to someone asking questions and getting an answer. Because again, for me, and I, I know I've said it, but I can't overstate it. It really, for me, it being an active exploration was what was one I wanted to do, but two, to me, what was what was most interesting. So it's less about, oh, this happened. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you the story. It was more, how, what, how did this, how could this have affected this? Or how did, how could we have known? Or all of those things. Um, it's fascinating. I do want to get to some of the, like, some of the secrets of the book, some of the things that, that um, our audience might not know. Um, so I'm going to read off a couple of things in my own notes. Um, Kristen Wiig auditioned for the role of Pam and things obviously have worked out for her, but, um, can you imagine anyone else playing Pam, um, than who did? No. And in fact, you know, so this is, I guess, was new information for me. I didn't know this, but <laughs> I asked, uh, Greg Daniels, the creator, Ken Quapas, the writer, uh, Ben Silverman, several others. Um, of everyone who was cast initially, um, who did you know first? Like, what was the, like, what was the first person that fell into place? And everybody said, Jenna Fisher, Pam, mm -hmm. that was it. She walked in and she, that she was Pam, like, and Greg Daniels said that she was Pam there. Was, and, and he said, you know, there was some improvisation that happened in the audition process and he said later he found himself, she was so just genuinely a, a person applying for a receptionist job that he kept, he started asking her questions like out of this genuine curiosity. It was almost like for him, he lost himself. But he, he said, comes off the top of my mind. He was like, where did you work before? 
where where were you? Where were you? Where were you employed? But like literally started asking her questions because he just sort of lost himself in that. Like she just was was the person. Um, and it's fun. Like I don't know why I thought. You know, I I think I assumed everyone would say Rain. Like I think because for me, you know, he's just a, such a particular form of weird. Um, you know, and he had done. You know, he had in some ways had had sort of the most success. I mean, we were all unknowns, but he had done like a season on Six Feet Under one or two years before. And so he, you know, he was known and it, it sort of just fit right in. It's such a specific character. Th th that's what I assumed. But everybody said no, Jenna. But yeah, about the Kristen Wiig thing. I mean, this was this. I didn't learn this in the book, but I've told the story. Uh, when Steve Carell left, Allison Jones came to me and said, um, you know, she was looking for artifacts in her records, things that might have been interesting. Um, she said, I didn't really find anything for Steve, but I found this for you. And it was the final list of who they were considering for Kevin. And it was Eric Stone Street, uh, who went on to do Modern Family, obviously, and uh, Jorge Garcia who went on to do Lost and many other things, and myself. So now I just feel like I, I should have been Cam in Modern Family. That, that, <laughs> that could have worked out that way. Well, and Paul Rudd didn't want Steve Carell, or he had reservations about Steve Carell taking on his role, which I didn't know until I read your book. Yeah, he told Steve, don't do it. Don't do it, man. It's going to be terrible. The show's going to be terrible. Don't go in. Well, I um, guess Paul was wrong. Can you take me to there? You've had some famous um, fans. Uh, Barack Obama is sort of uh, probably one of your most famous fans. And can you talk about the moment when Steve Carell shared a letter that the former president wrote to him? Yeah, he wrote. He said, uh, Thursday nights are office nights in the White House, which, I mean, <laughs> it kind of doesn't get any any cooler than that. We had... We had some photocopy letters um, that were were posted for a period of time. Aaron Sorkin wrote a very, very nice letter. Uh, Barack Obama, some others that were kind of posted outside um, of of well of the office, right, right when before we walked in. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing, and I you know I ended up talking to Billie Eilish, um, who is famously a very big fan of the show and in fact wrote a song about her fandom of the show uh, my strange addiction um and talked to her and she was another she was another person who uh who talked about comfort and the show she puts it on even if she's not watching she feels like she knows what everybody looks like and what's happening in every scene but she puts it on because it it takes her to a place that that um that brings her comfort um, you made a reference to this earlier, but the the show barely survived its first season. I wanted to like quick, we only have one more question left, but quickly, why did it almost not survive that season? And why do you think NBC renewed it? I, it was weird. It was, it was, it was a weird show shot in a weird way. There wasn't a laugh track. The camera was moving around and jittery and, you know, we didn't look like the cast of Friends. Or as you know, we were coming out of the age of Friends, or as Ben Silverman says, or Baywatch, which was like Friends in bathing suits. Uh, we were different, and it took some time to to catch on. And 
you know, one of the chapters of the book is about that, what happened that second season. Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of reasons, but if 40 year old Virgin doesn't come out at the beginning of season two, and suddenly we have the biggest comedy movie star on the planet on our show, it, it probably dies before any of the other things could happen. That's fascinating. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. This has been, I have so many more questions to ask you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us this morning. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.